Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today I interviewed Garrett Miller from The Good Life Farm. As you probably worked out by now, one of our favorite topics on the podcast is diversity and how we can integrate it on our farms in an economically viable way. It so happens that Garrett has been doing this to an extraordinary degree for the past 10 years. His business goes beyond what we think of as a farm, producing too much diversity for me to really get my hand around, with a crew of 12 people year-round. We had a fantastic conversation on how we can run on how he runs his diverse business, and we then focused on how and why he's integrating turkeys in his orchard. For us, agroforestry isn't just about planting timber trees in agricultural settings, but also how we can integrate different elements in a way that improves the quantity and quality of overall production. Garrett has been doing a great job on his farm, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Okay, Garrett, welcome on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool. So it would be really great to start with um, a description of uh, yourself, uh, how you got started in agriculture and and how you started the Good Life Farm. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to remember here. Um, <laughs> it feels like it's been like a lifetime ago and also really, really brief. Um, we started this business uh, probably almost 13 years ago now, maybe 12 years ago. And we're in New York state, uh, here in the central part of the state in the Finger Lakes region. So, um, it's an area I grew up in and then, uh, moved back to as a young adult and had kind of chose this as a place that I really wanted to, to get set up in life for a bunch of different reasons, but I uh, identified this as the place to get started. Um, so I got started relatively young with the, the business here. I was 22 at the time um, and didn't have nearly enough experience or background to be doing what we wanted to, to take on, but uh, that had had the energy and the attitude. So I went for it um, have, and have kind of paid for our education along the way, but uh, definitely started out as a, really relatively inexperienced farmer and land manager and have um, kind of gone the, gone the road of, of uh, paying for our own education and learning things the hard way often. Um, but started the business with um, my partner at the time, uh, life partner, business partner, got married along the way, got divorced along the way. I'm still running the business now as a solo entrepreneur, um, but our team has grown dramatically. So kind of the trajectory has been um, two people starting a farm from scratch here in the Finger Lakes um, on a piece of vacant land, a land with no buildings, no water, no infrastructure, no plants, really no, really no soil life, no biodiversity, uh, kind of an intensively managed cornfield for 
the last 50 years and setting up to try to make a go of uh, a diversified small farm, a, a sort of a thriving ecosystem, something that would leave the land a little better than we found it. Um, so have just been on a 12 year journey trying to learn how to make that possible. Um, and we can get into all the details later, I guess, but uh, have, have grown a, a wide array of crops, annuals and animals and planted perennials along the way, primarily fruit trees. Um, about halfway through that trajectory, we, we started a second business that's a, a farm winery. So it's a, called the Finger Lake Cider House, and it's our uh, customer-facing, agritourism, value-added business that makes a whole lot of products and primarily ciders and now wines and uh, interfaces with customers about the farm. And um, since that point, the business has grown pretty dramatically and has involved a lot more people now. It used to be two people doing it kind of part-time, figuring out how to make uh, ends meet. And now um, there's probably 12 people full-time on staff and seasonally double that. And we kind of are just uh, figuring out where we can take this thing as far as connecting people to agriculture and producing interesting products from a land that hopefully is getting healthier every year uh, than the year before. Okay, so. nice. And how did you, like, when you were 22, how did you decide to get into agriculture? What was the inspiration for you? Yeah, I have a kind of a weird... Um, educational background. I guess I dropped out of high school as a pretty young person, um, just finding it not to be a good fit for me. I was interested in other things that weren't schooling related, uh, primarily like the trades I was interested in, carpentry and building and in agriculture and uh, public schools weren't the best place to be learning that. So um, tried a bunch of different uh, self-education things and other school options for a couple of years and then found some awesome mentors. Um, that inspired me to get into agriculture. Uh, one of those was Mark Shepard in Wisconsin, uh, New Forest Farm, a place where we went and lived and sort of apprenticed is a loose word, um, but was mentored by Mark in broad acre agroforestry and kind of permaculture type principles and was very much inspired by work he was doing. Um, that was something we did just before launching the project here. And um, I had also done an apprenticeship at a, a very unusual place in North Carolina called Turtle Island that was also probably a formative and inspiring thing that helped me feel confident to take on um, uh, building a land-based project from scratch. It was sort of a, a wilderness apprenticeship thing for a year or so with a, with a crazy outfit down in North Carolina. Okay. Yeah. So um, <laughs> eclectic background, but a few good mentors. and. Um, a lot of good mentors since then. Since we started with this kind of big idea and ambition, we ended up finding ourselves in a really good community of people who were very generous with information and willing to help us get started. So we've had lots of mentors since then. So it's been like, uh, yeah, a bit of a blessing to find ourselves where we are. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I, I can't help to feel impressed that, you know, starting a business like the one you set up uh, a 22, um, you know, from scratch, uh, starting with a white piece of paper um, and, you know, building everything that you've built. I mean, I invite all of our listeners to go check out 
um, your website and the Instagram and and just to see what what's you know this kind of what seems to be a thriving system um, with so much going on. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. It definitely uh, could have been a lot easier, a lot, a lot less expensive, and uh, yeah, but and and yeah, totally a lot of luck along the way too. For the, the location in particular, has helped us out more than we could have imagined. Um, the physical site, the community, all that has helped us get started. Um, and at the beginning certainly didn't realize what we were starting or what we were trying to do. And so probably at this moment still don't really understand. We have a little bit better of an idea, but the trajectory has changed and I'm open to like, you know, 10 years from now being in a, in a, uh, a place we never expected. That's kind of where we find ourselves today is a place we hadn't expected. Mm, uh, but the underpinning principles are the same. Yeah. About land management. Okay. Um, we like to give our, our, audience a bit of a context of you know um the physical context that you're in could you tell us a bit about you know the acreage that you're farming on what's the soil like the rainfall the slope sure yeah 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 i'm sitting in my office right now looking out the window it's um at the time of this recording i guess it is the very beginning of march so the ground is still covered in snow or um probably 43 degrees latitude here and it's uh, generally have long wet winters we're near this beautiful geological phenomenon called the finger lakes which are these super deep glacial lakes that are in the center of new york state kind of near the great lakes so we're near a ton of fresh water i think it's like seven percent of the world's fresh water is in our sort of bioregion of the great lakes here and wow. the finger lakes are a big part of that so we're near a ton of fresh water um so the landscape is pretty abundant with water and we're on a a beautiful east-facing slope. It's probably about mostly 8% slope down to Cayuga Lake. We're probably about a mile. I'm um, sorry if I have this upstate New York accent, but that, yeah, Cayuga Lake is the, the lake that we're near. And it's really good agricultural soil in this, this region in general. The Finger Lakes, you'll see from aerial maps that a lot of southern New York is forested. When you start to get to these areas, a satellite map, unfortunately, ends up usually looking like a desert because there's a lot of huge cropping happening in this area, but it's good soils, and so farming is still thriving and alive. Um, so we moved to this area uh, because land was both affordable at that time, uh, becoming a little bit less so now, but definitely affordable, and it was very high-quality land for lots of different farming enterprises. So it's um, largely a corn and soy and wheat growing area, but also there's New York's biggest uh, grape industry activities happen up here. So there's a wine region that we're part of that. Um, so these sites are very good for wine grape growing, little temperature buffers, high quality soils, good mineral subsoil base, um, and decent water resources. We have a, you know, typically a wet spring and a, a dry couple months in the summer and then moisture returning and as the fall rolls around and usually good ripening for fruit crops um, tree fruit and, and grapes and all sorts of stuff so pretty abundant growing zone um, not as great as as some other parts of america but it's up there yeah uh, better than many parts of the world um that's for sure yes yeah, based on your sure. description so it's it <laughs> seems like there's a lot of potential um, yeah, and definitely some of the sites are getting degraded here because they're hillside sites. Um, okay. And erosion, just like everywhere in the world, is a huge problem. So this 
site has been heavily eroded over probably the last hundred years. And there's a lot less soil on this site than there recently was. And it's mostly in the lake, um, which is unfortunate because it's not coming back. But um, <laughs> that's one of the bigger hurdles with these sites is the soil is getting degraded more rapidly. Okay. And, um, you know, just just as we had talked about in our in our previous call, um, it would be great for you to give us a... Um, um, to tell us everything that you produce on the farm. I mean, um, also in terms of your activities, but especially uh, looking at the agricultural produce. I was, I was, you know, there was even more than what you had mentioned when I looked at your Instagram. So it's kind of surprising. Oh, cool. <laughs> so I'd love for our listeners also to have an idea of, of what are you producing there? Yeah, it's ebbed and flowed over time. So um, currently... It's a mix of annuals, perennials, and a little bit of livestock. We've dialed back on the livestock a little bit for complexity reasons recently. Um, uh, maybe in chronological seasonal order, I guess is an easy way to think about it. Um, we'll start harvesting asparagus soon in usually the end of April, uh, sort of the first crop that's coming off the farm. Um, so we've had a, a 12 year old asparagus planting. Uh, we now have a Yupik strawberry planting that's thriving and healthy. Uh, I should mention, I guess our farm is certified organic. So a lot of our management practices around the fruit in particular are very focused around that concept of being certified organic. Um, so we have a, a good strawberry crop. We have a growing seed garlic planting, so an annual crop that we harvest for scapes and bulbs that go to seed stock for other producers in the Northeast primarily. Um, and I'm sure I'm already forgetting stuff, but we grow peaches and Asian pears and a diversity of apples, both for fresh eating and specifically for cider making. Uh, in the fall, we'll also harvest a ginger crop that we grow. We've been maybe growing ginger for eight or nine years in our high tunnels, um, where we also produce specialty salad green mixes in the spring and in the uh, winter, kind of the no, no heat, uh, hearty greens concept. Um, so, um, I guess also in there is our, the, uh, raising turkeys primarily for Thanksgiving, but also for value added processing is sort of the main animal activity on the farm at the moment. We've, um, raised chickens and had beef a herd of beef cows in the past and farmed with draft horses for the better part of a decade and have dialed that back recently um, there'll be a few more animal activities coming in the cut in the coming year but um this season looks like probably just uh we'll stick with our turkey system to to have that be that energy fertility driver yeah okay Nice. So that's a yeah, quick rundown, and then there's a ton happening on the cider house side with products, value-added products, but that's a, a whole other bag, yeah. Yeah, well, actually, it would be great to, to know, what, what are these value-added products? You mentioned cider, right? What, what else are you, just a quick overview, what, what else are you transforming there? Yeah, so we, we probably make uh, 30 different labels of cider, of, of different types of alcoholic cider, Um kind of made like make like one would make sparkling wine. We now also make uh, a few different types of sparkling wine made from grapes grown from our neighbor's farms here. There's a lot of vinifera grapes growing nearby, so we're working with those. Okay. We turn our cider into vinegar and vinegar-based products. So that would be like um, things like shrubs we make, these that are cocktail mixer 
uh, fruit infused vinegar type products. So we have a lot of different cider vinegar products. And we have some sparkling non-alcoholic beverages that we make, both out of vinegar and out of ginger. So we make some sort of fresh uh, ginger style sodas for people who don't drink alcohol. Um, and we do some other can, uh, sort of fruit preserves and things like that, canned products, jams and sauces and things like that, as well as sourcing a tremendous amount. We probably, I don't know, we spend, we probably spent a hundred thousand dollars this last year purchasing in products from other farms to turn into food, uh, ready to eat meals. Like, you know, we have a small cafe on the farm, so pe uh, people will come and eat lunch here and do it have little dinner events and things like that. So we're sourcing food from our farm and primarily from the neighboring farms to supply all those needs. That's overwhelming, the amount of <laughs> diversity you're having to, to deal with. And and this is something that, you know, obviously we're gonna we're gonna get into is is managing that complexity. But let's just ho hold up a bit now because uh, sure. you know um I mean it seems to be to this kind of diversity of production seems to can just imagine an amazing, uh, very beautiful and diverse farm. And and this is something that, you know, in agroecology, there's a lot of talk about it, you know, diversifying our farms and, you know, creating um, um, small and diverse systems. Um, and so, or big and diverse systems, but diversity is becoming more something that we hear more and more about. But of course, this, this comes with a challenge, which is selling it, right? That one of the pillars of the mm -hmm. farm is to be able to, to sell and distribute uh, and, and create value from this diversity. And that's often one of the big challenges that, that we hear about with farmers that are, that are diversifying. And one of the things that we're concerned about with, you know, on the podcast with agroforestry, because agroforestry often means bringing in more complexity and diversity into a farm system with the tree layer, for example. But, you know, stepping away from the agroforestry now specifically um, and looking more at the diversity of products that you have to, to manage and to sell, I'm, I'm really curious about how you how you managed to do that, you know, has this diversity come in like little by little through the years or did you start with a huge diversity from the, from the get go? Um, it definitely didn't start all, you know, all, all, all at once like that it has incrementally increased over time. And we, we, I think my personality lends towards like, uh, complexity a little bit. Like I am interested in a lot of different, uh, things that can be produced from food products, from soil, from land. And so probably tend toward over complexity oftentimes and have to get dialed back by the <laughs> team that surrounds me. I have some awesome people around me who are uh, very balancing outlooks and help me dial back in some of that complexity because it can be a big, uh, it can sometimes be a burden or a risk. So we have added over time and haven't been afraid to subtract things here and there. Um, we currently don't raise beef cattle or farm with draft horses. And we certainly have made products that maybe were a little bit of a flop and we've dialed them back. Um, almost all of our marketing, I would say 90% of our income, maybe 80% is uh, direct to consumer. So, okay. And so that has allowed us to really market complexity because consumers are seem like they're often really embracing that story. They want something that has a lot of um, nuance and depth and things that they can come back to and revisit and, and find out more things and feel connected to a space that is providing for a number of their needs. So mm. um, that has really helped the direct to marketing. Uh, 
And I think we've sort of been very fortunate in finding ourselves in a location that allows for direct marketing off our premise. So people come to our site, we're open 360 days a year and see tens of thousands of people now coming. I'm watching a car drive down the driveway right now as we're talking that someone who's coming to visit the cider house and do, I don't know, uh, drink cider, have lunch maybe. Um, and maybe leave with some produce as well, right? Yes. Yeah, we definitely have uh, frozen food items at this point. Soon we'll have our spring salad mixes again. Okay. Um, we're certainly processing local foods all the time. So um, the on-premise visitation, place, uh, sense of place that like people can come and feel like it's uh, one of their places that they can go to has been a huge ability to sell the diversity. So um, at this point, we're looking for what kind of diversity makes sense for this physical site and, and what's what's putting too much pressure on the system and what's just like a really solid fit for the ecosystem. Okay. Uh, delving a bit more into the into the your sales approach because you know that's, yes. that's the key to as you described that that direct selling is the key to being able to distribute diversity um, but do you have a, a, um, a shop on the farm and is that where you sell most of your produce or do you also um, go out to markets and go uh, sell produce to local shops um, you know what, what if we could give some proportions yeah I would say 80% of our products are sold or income um, is, is coming from on-farm sales. Okay. And the other percentage is, is to uh, either online where we're shipping product uh, or to local accounts within probably 20 miles of here, maybe 30 miles of here where we will deliver product to. Um, and it varies t product type. Um, how we distribute it, but primarily, um, primarily off, off site here, we, or on site here is where we'll, we sell. Um, yeah, trying to think how to, how to break it down a little bit. Um, the more I'm a pretty introverted person and like to like to stay here and be here on this, on the farm and I'm happy on days when I don't have to like get in my car and go anywhere. Um, so I, I'm inclined to, I'm not a very good salesperson and I'm inclined to not go out and develop new accounts. So I'm usually trying to figure out how we can get more people to come here and purchase products directly from here. So we do have a storefront that's open, um, you know, seven to nine hours a day year round and people can come in and meet with one of the farm staff to, either buy products from our, our little shop or do a um, kind of a, a pub style experience where they're drinking various local beverages and eating local foods. Um, we do a lot of online marketing to um, let people know when there's things that they can come pick off the farm. So we do you pick, we let them know they can sign up for Thanksgiving turkeys and come at a certain date and pick them up. Um, but when things can't be sold here, we will definitely get in our little, um, Scooby-Doo delivery vehicle and drive 30 miles to our near town and often and drop off a lot of products. And that's probably 20% of the income. Okay. And drop off products directly to the consumers again. Uh, no, that's often being dropped off to a retailer. Yep. To a local co-ops and yeah. a few little restaurant accounts and uh, wine shops and things like that. Yeah. And do you see that as, as an interesting 
sales strategy as well? Are you what's I mean, what's the future prospects of of, of your approach now? This eighty twenty approach, if we can call it, of <laughs> direct selling on the farm vs retailing. Are, are you imagining to 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 increase that retail opportunity, um, or how how are you seeing this evolve in the future? I'm 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 not that inclined to develop more off farm retail accounts. I think the finding the direct to consumer marketing to be really resilient, like even, you know, especially during the pandemic and other, mm. all sorts of other situations I can imagine when you have a customer base of tens of thousands of people versus yeah. maybe five accounts that, or, you know, especially in say the wine world where you might have one distributor or two yeah. distributors. If they, if they change their business model, if two people change their mind, your whole sales channel has fallen apart and which is the driver of your whole kind of vision and business. But it's unlikely that, 20 or 40,000 people will all change their mind at the same time and decide that they don't want your stuff anymore. Um, so we have a lot of resilience with a lot of people and the internet has pretty much made that possible to connect with that many people because they can view your platform. They can see, um, you know, they can just kind of follow you on all the different social medias and review sites and kind of get a sense of what you're doing. You can, we have newsletters that go out that connect with people that way. It's a lot to keep up with and we don't keep up with it nearly as well as we should, but it's, it's um, functional. It's allowing us to climb in stability and sales. So I think if we do do um, expand in a market opportunity, it will be um, both getting more pe- people here for more reasons and, and to stay in longer and do more, but also, um, trying to ship our products to people who have, who have visited us and connected and want to stay in touch. And I know there's, you know, there's drawbacks and, and energetic cost of moving product around the country, both, um, you know, primarily right now it's st- shelf stable products like ciders and wines. Um, we hope to be able to ship other products eventually value added shelf stable products or frozen meats and things like that. Okay. But um, it's an awesome way to, to scale sales without scaling the, like climbing the, uh, scaling the farm beyond its, uh, maybe it's beyond its means here. So we're chasing sort of higher return sales. Without having to hugely increase your infrastructure as well, having to put put up shops in different yeah. places and et cetera. You've got one base, but you can just, you know, use the kind of postage system to, to get product out to, to other people yeah, in different parts sure. of the country okay it's interesting i mean uh, as a little anecdote uh, i think is quite interesting to share here i'm working with a farmer now who who's doing wholesale farming he's got 10 hectares of apples and um at some point he tried to he tried to direct sell you know and he started producing some apricots and he tried to direct sell apricots he put a small quantity um, and some of his apples of course um but it, it didn't work out for him because um he didn't he wasn't able to you know, people, um, they they want, to, if they're going to buy produce, they want convenience. This is what he was saying, right? So they want to go to the supermarket where everything is kind of accessible. So he was, mm-hmm. what's different between you and him here, and which is very clear, your farm and, and his operation is is that you're, you're able to attract many people and to come onto the farm through the cider house and through also, uh, right. I, I can imagine people are very interested in seeing what a, a you know, a diverse, um, 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 innovative farm looks like. And this is something that I think would, is key to get these people here, get them interested, share the story, get them to see the, you know, see the, 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 the people that work there as well, your crew, and, and then be able to yeah. get an emotional attachment in a way, right? And so this is an interesting anecdote because it made, it made me think a lot. You know, we're always thinking, 
diversity, uh, sorry, a direct selling, that's a key, but it's not always accessible for everybody. And you've managed to, to kind of crack it there and, and to get, I mean, you're talking about 10 to 20,000 people visiting your farm. That's, that's a huge amount of people coming in. Yeah. And I, I, sometimes it definitely feels too complex and it is getting a little easier each year, but I do think it's the, the burden to direct sell is, is definitely not for everyone. And I think they're, yeah, the other models have their own challenges, but need, need support, need to be developed because it's, it's maybe not a realistic expectation for a lot of people to, to do what it takes to direct sell mm. in the way, especially the way we are. I mean, we're, there, you do a ton of things that are not farming. You primarily do things, I would say, as the business owner that are not farming. Um, so mm. if your goal and your talents are really in farming, then um, running a business that is a farm that directs markets is probably not a, a maybe uh, it'd be something you should look at closely before jumping into it. There's so much on the um, the marketing side and sort of human resources side it usually requires more people. So there's more staff management and um, just the financial management and, um, and so for one person to be good at all those things, it's just like too burdensome. So the enterprise usually ends up being bigger and then um, that becomes a different kind of business when it's like when there's 10 people and there's some uh, division of labor and role division. So that that wasn't really on my radar getting started is now and we kind of lucked out in that i enjoy that kind of work so it's a decent fit for me even though i find myself doing less of the things i was doing when we started yeah hmm. interesting i, I like uh, how you nuance the the whole um direct selling thing of you know it might not be adapted to everybody i think that's really important to to, to yeah. take into account an important consideration when you're doing your holistic context, trying to work out what your farm is going to look like. Um, but you know, one of the when 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 I looked on your website and I saw you pick, one of the first things that crossed my mind is, um, you know, now I'm seeing where I'm working, for example, and how sensitive the trees are. You know, you don't want to want to be careful. You don't want to break the spurs of the apple trees. You want to. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, how how do you manage with having? possibly hundreds or maybe thousands, I don't know, of people walking through your farm and harvesting themselves, people who don't necessarily have a lot of experience with uh, agriculture, with, with farming, that don't necessarily, you know, how, do, are you not worried that you get damaged? Do you, do you get damaged? And I mean, how's that going for you? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're only a s- several years in and with UPIC stuff and the numbers are a little bit lower as far as the volume of people that are out there right now as we're developing more crops and new plantings. Um, so I'm assuming the complexity will increase over time, like some of these multi-generational farms or farms that have been doing it for a, a couple decades and there's a big word of mouth and there's a ton of influx of people. Um, so we have, we've had the ability to ramp up a little bit more slowly through this and, and troubleshoot. But it is, it's a little bit of a, you know, and letting go and of like, if you're meticulous in nature of exactly how you want your crops to be, you have to know mm-hmm. that you're sharing them with everybody and stuff's going to happen. Um, people are going to, they're going to break some branches. They're going to eat some fruit and throw it on the ground. And if that drives you crazy, it's probably not a good fit for you. Um, okay. We charge a reasonable amount. We kind of charge a little bit less than the retail value of the fruit. Um, but we don't have to obviously pick, pack, wash, distribute, um, and get a lower price anyway. Um, so the pricing 
helps definitely offset um, some of those challenges of welcoming people onto okay. the farm and extra cost to direct them and communicate with them. Um, so I, it's definitely worth it I, for us and is, is um, also wholesale. Like um, the other option when you start to have more and more product, get they, they become less and less attractive often at sort of a medium scale, like the ability to sell a couple thousand bushels of apples locally is not very good. Um, there's a lot of apple producers in this area. So you have to be doing something incredibly unique or you end up selling to the lowest cost uh, processing endpoint, which is like these uh, juice and sauce plants that are near, near us in New York. Um, okay. So without being so small that all you have is, you know, a handful of bushes you bring to the farmer's market and the far end being these processing plants, you are looking for that. Um, there's a big squishy middle in there where you have to figure out something that fits with your specific model, your personality, your land base to have mm. more than, you know, to not be in one of those extremes. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I realize now that my comment may have been a bit negative because I mean, there's, it's very, I mean, it's, it's, it, it looks amazing to have such a beautiful interaction with your local community. You know, they come on your farm, they interact with your trees, they interact with your farming practices. And yeah, that's yeah. The, the positive side, right? You, there's, there's a, there's a beautiful connection between the farm and which, which is completely opposite to a wholesale farm that's selling to a cooperative that nobody enters. And, you know, and just yeah. to, just to finish off on this, on this sales, um, kind of topic before we move on to agroforestry and again everybody's probably telling thinking that we should they want to move on to agroforestry as soon as possible but um um you know apparently transformation uh in, for example of your apples into cider is a big part of your strategy as well and i'd love to have some to know some of your thoughts about this you know how how did that come about and 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 what, what's your feeling about this transformation thing which is again something that we hear a lot about to create value to be able to you know try yeah. to to make an operation profitable and, and and a business sustainable absolutely yeah that's been key um totally core part of our business model and i love it it's good we're going to keep doing okay. it um <laughs> like for example when you're harvesting a ton of apples you have a great bumper crop almost everyone else also has a great bumper crop at that same time. Mm. And if you're all selling to the same markets, it becomes sort of a race to the bottom in pricing. It's like a, yeah. you know, kind of a, a challenge and you, you're competing in a way you don't necessarily want to compete with your neighbors. And um, it's the nature of that sort of multi-tiered uh, food system where you're not connected to customers and the value kind of chain up and will collapse with these great abundant yields. Um, so when you're uh, the value adding, particularly with making something shelf stable is, is really a powerful tool for us. Um, alcohol production is, you know, kind of one of the most shelf stable things that you can make out of uh, products. You know, it's kind of crazy that you can make a product that gains value as it gets older, even if you haven't done anything to it, just the fact that it gets older, some of those products will gain value. Um, so, and the, kind of the far end of that extreme would probably be distilling products, right? Distilling things deals with bumper crops. So when you have a your good year, you make a lot of spirits or alcohol. And when you have a, the bad years that eventually roll around for your farm, you still have something that is self-stable that you can sell and spread out the inevitable bad years. Or you can work with another producer who had a good year to purchase in their products and add value if you are having a bad year. Um, and the ability to ship those products is very powerful because there's that connection of agriculture then to people who are in areas maybe where they aren't, can't get connected to a farm 
or are in sort of these food deserts or are not around the, the style of agriculture they want to support, the ability to send them something they can help, you know, help any, any, any help in any sales mechanism is really valuable at this small scale. So people who want to support us from the other side of the country is a welcome, uh, a welcome sale. Yeah. Hmm. Plus you can open a cider house or a pub and, you know, and get people to your, uh, to your, to your farm and interact with the local community again. And it's a, yeah, it's, been definitely more been able to build more culture and more resilience and more like getting more our sort of our rural area here now is like there's a spot where people can uh, spend time after work. There's probably three or four of our staff have moved into the region and our young people moving into a somewhat economically depressed area and buying homes and trying to you know, put energy into a, a small town where a very small town outside of, um, you know, a larger town of probably 40,000 people, um, but we're mm. 20 miles away. And so energy into that economy is fantastic. Um, I also wanted to mention too, that uh, from the value added sign, like selling an apple, um, I'm often, uh, I find the, our ability to sell that apple at the price we need to get for it is very difficult. People have a very fixed idea about what food should cost and the price flexibility is very low. They, if an apple okay. is going to cost um, $2, it's like a big deal for someone if the apple is going to cost $2.25. That's a big change okay. for someone to mentally swallow. When you're making value-added products, there's much more flexibility in what the product should cost or what the perceived value is, particularly with making, you know, wine would be an extreme end. If this a $10 bottle of wine or a $50 bottle of wine, it's a 500% increase and you can uh, sell that story if that's your goal. Like, but there's, that's sort of an extreme example, but any like food has the lowest price flexibility, which is unfortunate because it shouldn't be that way. But um, kind of as we're hopingly, you know, hoping to fix some aspects of the food system, the, the value added side gives you these little windows into um more flexibility and setting your own price. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting information. Um, and, and, and just stepping back uh, a bit, uh, what you were saying earlier on, uh, going back to, to the, the social side, it's, it's just amazing how a diversity of produce, a diversity, sorry, of, of, of production, agricultural production has led to a diverse business, which has led to create a, a variety of functions in the in, in the local you know social context which is you know reuniting people creating a place where people can enjoy themselves and and connecting um, and connect together connecting with the community it goes beyond farming and this is what's fascinating with with what you've created there and well um okay maybe now is the time to talk about agroforestry and to sure. look at uh, uh, yeah, and yeah. To look a bit at your systems um of how you're integrating turkeys and fruit trees and also asparagus in between fruit trees. So it would be amazing to start with the turkeys and to tell us a bit about how you're, I mean, tell us a bit about how it works out in practice, how you're integrating the turkeys, um, you know, what are they eating there? What, are, how are you managing them? If, if you could describe those system, that, that system, it would be, it would be great. Yeah. Yeah. The system is sort of based on something that we experienced when working with Mark Shepard in, in Wisconsin, uh, New Forest Farm. And he had two acres of asparagus that was be, was uh, alley cropped between his chestnut trees, these sort of hybrid chestnut trees. 
Mm-hmm. Um, turns out chestnuts were probably a better bet for that application than our, than apples. But at our site, we wanted to grow fruit. It was a good fruit growing site that was an interest and a market. And um, so have chose, uh, chosen apples. So our system is semi-dwarf rows of apples that are probably spaced roughly about 70 feet apart, 65 to 70 feet. So that's quite a wide alley. And those alleys contain the asparagus um, in five row beds. So there's these uh, two acres of asparagus spread out among, uh, across a larger amount of acreage that also contains semi-dwarf apple trees, uh, peaches, and pears. And um, those alleys are also where the turkeys graze. So there's kind of three elements there that are related to the income streams and sort of cash flow and business side of the farm. There's that fruit crop, there's the asparagus crop, and then there's the livestock, the turkeys. Um, the asparagus grows in a living cover, which at one point was better managed and was actually like a, a uh, planted cover crop. It is now sort of a perennial forage that is uh, a mix of, you know, legumes and broadleaves and grasses. And so that is, that's the food source for, well, part of the food source for the turkeys, obviously they eat a ton of grain. And so there's a grain input, but the turkeys are both an energy driver of the system. They're a pest control element to the system. They do help with disease suppression to some, which I could get into. And they are a short-term cash flow thing. So that's one of our biggest hurdles too, right? When we're talking, we're interested in perennials, perennials often have, not the greatest business models associated with them early on. The cash flow is often a struggle and semi-dwarf apple trees are somewhere in the middle of, of those, that long lived perennial plan that the apple trees probably are like more of like a seven year trajectory before you're really having some harvestable and saleable yields. Um, the asparagus is much sooner. It's in that three-year range. The turkeys mm-hmm. are a six month turnaround typically of cash flow, And so, have that other layer in the system. Not only are they a driver of those biology and um, support the trees, they also help the business model work from year one. So um, not that necessarily worked well for us from year one or that we cash flowed positively in year one or two, but it, it could for someone who knew more than we did getting started. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And uh, do you, so you rotate the turkeys using netting right electric netting is that is that correct yeah. and you yeah how, so what does your rotation look like how often do you move them yeah i guess starting with the um the turkeys do start in a brooder like in a in a barn setting so just filling out my organic certification recently that's the the confined animal step which is you know where these birds are all in one little spot in a brooder staying safe getting you know going from one week old to three weeks old at three weeks or three and a half weeks they go out Uh, onto pasture in the form of a kind of a a chicken tractor, essentially like a polyface Joel Salatin style chicken tractor system. So there's several of those. There's I think four are used right now for 250 turkeys. So those turkeys are spread between four tractors that are run down the alleys of those fruit trees, um, typically under the drip line, kind of closer to the tree at that time. Um, we do have to be careful with all of our turkey management that we're adhering to the organic standard of, um, for a fruit tree crop, it's 90 days of, uh, for fresh manure being introduced into the system. Um, so a, 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 you can't, you can't put down, say, uh, 
fresh manure, like either hand applied or by having an animal there within 90 days of harvest of a crop that is grown on a tree. So that's a a key piece that would be better in the future for us to design around more very specifically about when turkeys can be there, when they can't. Uh, but typically that allows us early summer to introduce them to the trees or post-harvest cleanup uh, to the trees. Otherwise, they are totally in the alleys between the trees, which is that 60 to 70 foot um, alley cropping area where the asparagus is. Um, hopefully I'm doing a decent job explaining it because it is a very physical um, system you know, to envision how the trees are planted. But so... Just just to confirm something, you're playing between placing them the turkeys very close to the trees in the chicken tractors, Salatin style yes. chicken tractors, vs placing yes. them in the middle, kind of grazing on top of or around the asparagus, or that would be after yes. the asparagus have been harvested, so after April, uh, and they would just be so you're you're playing with this, and that enables you to kind of be in control of this organic certification standard, right? They can be they 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 can be in this middle lane whilst the apples are being harvested, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah, that's, uh, that's I mean, good. they're essentially in a different field. They're uh, in an area where harvest crew is not at all engaged in if you fence them in appropriately into the alley. Yeah. But okay. they can be let under the, the drip line because really the most influence on the tree is gained from letting them under the drip line of yeah. the tree where they can of course. Um, help decompose leaves, uh, apple leaves. They can help decompose fruit. They can work around the soil uh, and uh, the trunk line is an effective area for them to work. They um, they will eat insects. They will eat rodents. We do have rodent problems in New York State with trees, particularly voles. Voles are, I don't know if you have them where you are, but they're a huge problem in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, little, little rodents that like to girdle fruit trees and uh, kill trees for what seemingly no reason, but I'm sure they have a good reason. <laughs> just for fun, uh, you know, just to <laughs> piss off the farmer. Right. Um, yeah. But uh, the, I mean, all of these things, I definitely want to get into them, of course. Sure. Um, um, but just to keep going with the, with the understanding yeah. of the system, so we have a good idea of how it looks like, and then we'll break these down a bit. Um, sure. Step by step, yeah. each one. So from brooder, brooder, uh, three weeks, they go into those turkey tractors, as we call them. And then usually three to seven weeks of age, they're in the tractor because they're often small and we have predation and they're difficult, very difficult to fence at small sizes. So three to six weeks, three to seven, um, they go out into a day range system after that. So that's where the netting comes in and they live in a mobile roost system that we built years ago that Mm -hmm. is still functional. We, I saw like a blurry, uh, picture one time of something that someone had taken at polyface farm uh and uh, in uh here in america and they it was a turkey roost thing and i was like that's genius and we tried to build one uh that immediately blew over and broke and we (laughs) rebuilt it a second time and it totally works now um we make it differently now but now there's some sounds like there's some great plans online that people can just follow so we just Mm. um we still use that we call it the turkey arc it's like a rolling roost system, so it can be pulled with horses or a tractor, um, and it's about uh, 14 feet wide and 24 feet long, I think. But it fits. It's two fifth, 250 full size turkeys is maybe pushing it for that arc system. Uh, we added okay. some extra roosts this past year, but I think mm-hmm. we're trying to find that healthy batch size of 
infrastructure that matches the turkey size that we need for a both uh, health of the flock and marketing purposes and ecological impact and 250 birds in a batch seems to be a sweet spot we're finding our system is okay. capable of fitting okay um and i think that batch size or flock size is kind of important um when thinking about how much animal impact you're trying to have in how much time like so with apples particularly or horticulturally intensive crops like that there's a few windows when you can get in to introduce your animals and you need to have enough impact you need to have enough density of animals to come in and do a significant amount of uh, disruption mm -hmm. or impact and then you need to pull them out and they have to go somewhere else um, if you have too few animals it's maybe not the most beneficial yeah that's really interesting when you say you have a small window uh, you have small windows of opportunity to integrate the animals in the fruit systems. Could you elaborate yeah. a bit on that? What sets the limits? Is, uh, you know, could, yeah. Could you just explain why you say that? Yeah. So the asparagus has a broader window, um, like you said, like really after harvest, uh, and then the fr the ferns are growing over the early summer and kind of are maturing by mid to late summer and can handle animals in there. Um, because the animals tromp them down and trample them almost like they would pasture. And so the later in the season they get on um, the asparagus, the better. The fruit trees, on the other hand, um, the animals could go in there early on in the spring. We have a, we often have a management challenge in that apples are, in our climate, humid, wet. Um, at, fruit trees are, are horticulturally really intensive in our area and challenging to grow. We have a lot of pest and disease problems. So we have to, you know, we have a, a spray program we use in the spring. So we're, we're bringing a tractor through there with a sprayer. And that is a conflict between livestock being right in that same zone. Hmm. Um, so we, we've learned to, we've learned to work with the timing on that. We've, We've sprayed anywhere from two times in a season, which is too few, really. We've had some problems and uh, up to like 15 times in a season when we've had severe problems related to mis mostly mismanagement to kind of recover from problems. So we're finding the apples are much more horticulturally intensive than we originally thought. So that's defined some of the system, um, which is one reason I would be very particular about designing with apples in the future in our climate. Um, okay. And so the, 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 the windows are set by the management needs of intervening in the system plus the harvest thing, which is, you know, yes. they, need to be, they need to be out 90 days, you said, before? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, so that, that's what so sets the kind of the window. Yeah, between spray, kind of intensive spray time and then uh, harvest time, there is a, a early season window for us. It's like June, July, and then you can come in um, apples start getting harvested in September and October. So you can come in maybe late September, October and November to have animals that are coming as sort of a cleanup effort, which has a lot of uh, labor reduction and ecological value to us to have the animals come in at the end of the season too. Okay, nice. So that's really interesting. And um, now let's start, you started, you mentioned many things here, many words little sentences that need to be dug into. <laughs> this is why we're here. Um, so let me tell us a bit about this. Tell us a bit about, let's start with the leaves and the, and the decomposition. We know that in, in, our, in, in fruit culture, one of the problems is leaves that stay for too long, they can spread disease onto the trees. So we want to have yes. fast decomposition, right? Just setting right. the scene here. So tell us, how do the turkeys help with this? 
Yeah, we manage the turkeys in kind of a, on the same mob grazing mentality that people will graze cattle. Um, so high density of animals in a small amount of space that typically move one every one to two days. Um, so depending That's on it. the forage quality, they are the paddock size that we set up with the fencing is designed for a yeah one to two day rotation. Um, the denser it is, the more impact they they have. Um, and we want that effect where, where the birds once where they've just left often looks to, to the, maybe the untrained eye, looks like kind of like a disaster. Like all of the grass <laughs> has been eaten down or tramped down into that mat on the ground. Um, there's a blanket of manure everywhere. There's, uh, some patches of bare soil where they've been scratching or, uh, you know, messing with their water and making a bare patch or something. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a disruption that's happening. They don't go back to those areas usually at all. And if anything, there will be a second impact from turkeys later on in the year. But usually it's a one once a year, but sometimes it's twice. Um, so it's a long rest period and a high impact, kind of like you would with cows. And that seems okay. to do things like um, periodically keep the grass really short, right up under the trunk line, which is a labor-intensive task to do with human power um, or requires very expensive machinery to mow like that um and it also um has the benefit of matting the grass down instead of fully uh mowing it so you can get a better diversity of plants maybe a little more protection on the soil and that blanket of manure combined with matting the grass down helps to decompose that leaf uh that leaf litter more readily which that yeah like you mentioned leaf litter as a as a great harbor for disease particularly scab yeah yeah. Okay. Nice. And I, I read a I read a study about this actually that they were integrating poultry into forests and they were seeing a much faster decomposition rate of the litter, which may be positive or negative. Uh, in you know, it depends right. on the context. I'm not saying in the forest it was necessarily a good thing, uh, but uh, definitely um, in this context, um, I mean, this is something you're talking about that's also backed by by science and that they've that, you know people are monitoring in other contexts. So that's really interesting. It's probably yeah. something reliable that we can, you know, something that we can rely on as a technique. Um, yeah, because people also recommend spreading um, nitrogen-based fertilizers as a decomposing agent um, mm-hmm. if you're not yeah. using animals. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And what about, you know, you started mentioning now the grasses and the weeding. Um, I mean, um, what, what, what I'm thinking in my head to, you know, with the system that you described is that if the, if the, if, if the turkeys, they intervene in, a, in an area underneath the apple trees, for example, to clear it for the harvest, to keep things clean, etc. Um, and but they have a 90 day period where they need to be out. Well, the grass would have sprouted back right well, th- by that time. And it would already be, you know, relatively tall and need to be mowed again. Right. It's, am, yeah. am, is that is that correct? Yeah. Depending on the rainfall of the season, there, we definitely have to do some mowing. Um, and since we do you pick as well, like you definitely need to do a pre-harvest mowing that's pretty tight in order okay. to foot traffic, whether it's employees or st- uh, customers. So there is a mowing there. Um, sometimes it's a little ragtag of a mowing. The turkeys do a very thorough job. It's usually not yeah. ragged at all. They're um, pretty homogenous and they really, if they're if they're at the right density, will do a very detailed job. Um, okay. Sometimes we'll do a quick pass with, of mowing with the tractor, but won't bother with the tree, the row middles as we call them, like between the trees. That's yeah. the more labor-intensive area to get with the with the hand handwork. Are the turkeys having an impact on weeding as well? For example, if they intervene at that window, you know, for example, around the springtime, 
uh, when there starts to, or, or late spring, when there starts to be a bit of a competition for, uh, depending on your climate, right? But this is, I don't know how it works exactly, but maybe on some years in your climate, it's a challenge. You start to have competition between the trees and the grasses. Have you used the mm -hmm. turkeys as a, as, a, as a tool to manage the grasses and to give them a bit of a, of a shock? And to, to, is, it, is it a weeding tool as well for you? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely can be. Um, getting the right amount of animals to the right acreage and totally replacing our mowing hasn't happened, uh, but we do, get, we do have uh, understory control. In our system, it's a perennial ground cover, so it's not really so much weeds as it is just like the competition of, of understory, um, which we typically, with our apple management practice, like to let it um, grow to what looks like a first hay cutting size. So quite tall and mm. kind of with the idea that it's um, going to add value to the soil. It is going to trap fungal diseases at more at a ground level. Um, so we do... Uh, sort of a early June mowing is our first mowing when we when someone might cut hay around here. Um, okay. So we like we think that one adds value, and we try to cut the the ground cover loosely and and lay it down. But later in the season, the turkeys will kind of pulse through and keep ground cover managed for us at different levels as well as introducing that fertility, which I've found we took a year off from doing turkeys one year and really noticing impact from um, our system maybe our soil types and our, the ground cover competition really benefits from having some energy nitrogen introduced into the system, which is, you know, in this context is largely, you know, at least 70% of their diet is grain. So they're, they're getting that from, you know, this, that's where the energy is coming from for our system is imported grain. Mm -hmm. So you're not fertilizing with um, other imports of manure or any other, I mean, you're organic, so you're not going to be bringing mineral nitrogen, but um, your nitrogen right. applications comes from the turkeys solely. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Yep. We do um, some micronutrient foliar applications and we're fixing up an old row mulcher and that's been a, a valuable tool. So we have access to great, affordable hardwood bark mulch and and wood chips mm -hmm. so that okay. over time can be a really great carbon nitrogen in like fertilizing input to the system which also is great for habitat of insects and seems to be a fun thing for the turkeys mm -hmm. to kind of dust bathe themselves in so wood chips are a powerful or bark mulch is a powerful input to the system too that brings up for me the the idea of are you not worried that um of excess nitrogen um, you know, in, brought into the system by the turkeys? Is that a problem that you've perceived uh, in, in the past? We've thought about it being a problem and I'm, have usually experienced that we need more nitrogen than okay. or energy than we've had. Um, our peaches have suffered a little bit from being low lower input. They could definitely, they probably could use some more supplementary compost or manures besides just okay. one pulse of turkeys. Um, and then our apple varieties, uh, one of the big keys with apples uh, that would be, well, the future generations of this farm hopefully will be better off uh, is assessing which rootstocks and cyan would match with what soil type to create the perfect vigor of a tree. So a tree that has like a balanced, calm growth habit and fruiting habit that takes a minimal amount of mm. nitrogen inputs. And so we found trees that were way too vigorous that needed very little nitrogen and were way too big and we had to remove those trees or graft them. And we fat, we have ones that have totally rented out that have been too small and didn't have a good combination of 
uh, rootstock and cyan for our soil type. So mm. that's been a nuance that is definitely a multi-generational project. Mm, for sure. Hopefully that makes sense. That's kind of, kind of a, a vague rainbow. No, I think it would make sense for somebody that knows about uh, fruit culture and, um, um, <sighs> I mean, um, I, I, I'm, I'm specializing myself in food culture. And so for me, I would ask you thousands of questions about, especially, <laughs> about especially food culture. But uh, the problem yeah. is that um, that would uh, require another podcast. I'd have to start another podcast called Fruit Growing or something. <laughs> but this yeah. is about agroforestry. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about the, the, um, what you mentioned about pest control. Uh, I'm yeah. really curious to, to know more about how the birds are having an impact on, on, on pests. And you also mentioned diseases. So also maybe you can, I mean, we've talked a bit about it now with the leaves and et cetera, but has this come from observations, like all of your own observations to be able to see that, you know, you've had a significant decline or increase in things with the animals? I'd love to know, to get into yeah. this topic. Yeah, it definitely is coming from observation. We don't have, I, I don't have anyone I can talk to about raising turkeys in an orchard, really. I don't know anyone around here who does it. So I would love to get more input from other people. I've never heard, you know, some anecdotal things about chickens and we used to raise some geese around here and I've talked to some other folks about geese, but um, turkeys have their own unique habits as well. Um, I think chickens would also do really well for a lot of the purposes that we're after, probably in some ways even better because they have more of a scratching habit than turkeys. Turkeys don't mm. so much scratch at the ground. Mm. but turkeys are larger than chickens and that's why one reason we like them a lot so their impact is greater they're heavier and they're they're like four times the size of a chicken and their you know their impact is just that much greater um and their appetite that much greater so yeah i mentioned it before but apples in our climate have a ton of insect and pest pro or sorry pest and disease problems okay. um it's one of the more seems like one of the more horticulturally challenging places to grow them Definitely farther southern U.S., like down to North Carolina, it's extremely challenging in some regards. So um, any help we can get is great because there's a, a, a wide array of spray applications you can do for organics, but um, horticultural practices seem to be much preferred. Um, so the turkeys have the benefit of cleaning up fruit drops and helping decompose fruit drops is one big benefit. Um Okay. And like, uh, and those leaf drops, that decomposing action is really helpful. Mm -hmm. So they are um, sometimes consuming the fruit or if not, just sort of like pecking on it, stomping on it, layering manure on it and decomposing it. Um, and also finding insects that are in it if they're, if it's a drop because there was um, maybe a, a curculio sting or larva of some sort inside that fruit. Um mm. They are messing, they're sort of uh, ravenously working around the base of a trunk of a tree and are, are pulling insects that might be coming down from the tree and harboring in the, in the soil. Uh, they're, they're able to feed on those. They don't have any really impact on, say, impacts that, of insects that fly from the tree to a hedgerow and have their life cycle and fly back. But they do some with the disruption of the fruit drops and the late season kind of leftover harvest drops. Uh, and then that decomposing of soil of leaf litter on the soil, um, which is harbors a lot of diseases in our area. But I, I mentioned apple scab is a large one, and uh, I'll butcher the name of this one, but Marsininia um, <laughs> blotch is this emerging, very defoliating, challenging um, 
leaf pathogen that uh, helps if you can decompose and get rid of uh, leaf litter. And so animals, nitrogen, all that help to break that down. What happened when you didn't include the turkeys? Did you notice, like, apart from the nitrogen thing and the vigor thing that you talked about, did you notice differences in, in pests? Yeah, I, I, on the insect front, I wish I could say that I definitely saw a difference when we didn't have the turkeys in there. The nitrogen was the more standout issue mm-hmm. from areas that didn't get the impact. The voles are a standout issue where... It's very clear where there's vole activity. They're a much bigger animal to, to follow what they're doing, voles in their vole yeah. trails mm-hmm. and their habits and their ring, their uh, girdling of trees and the areas they have impact. Um, so that's very clear. Um, but give like we haven't done enough trialing to co- to like decisively say curculio pressure was much less or um, – maybe some of the the moth pressures were much less because there was this impact i would um i'd have to be more scientific about it i guess and do do some controls and see it but so anecdotally i couldn't say for sure but just seeing the action that they have on the understory and the fruit drops and leaf drops um those are practices that i i have uh were encouraged as growers to do and the fact that you can get animals to do them for you makes you feel like okay they are having an impact that I'm otherwise sort of should be obligated to go do myself. So mm. um, you've really noticed that um, um, uh, uh, the, the turkeys help you in terms of management costs, right? There's like a, yeah. there's like an overyielding management efficiency. If we can compare to the overyielding polyculture concepts, you know, where you put two cultures together and overall in some contexts and in certain conditions, you can get a, a higher production production of biomass for example which is something we typically talk about in agroforestry but we can compare that to kind of the management costs this is very interesting to hear and so i'm curious to know more about it yeah anything that those turkeys are doing that we would otherwise have in our management plan for apples is a reduction in hourly labor costs everything we do on the farm gets paid hourly um there's no no i used to do a lot of free unpaid labor and now everything is, is paid and has at least a 20 dollar an hour us dollar kind of price tag to it mm-hmm. um so and oftentimes more if there's equipment involved um, the tractor costs are higher and opportunity cost is another thing and so the costs are quite high with human mm-hmm. intervention it's like our highest cost in the whole farm and business across the board uh, a third of all of our expenses are labor related. Mm-hmm. So anything an animal will do um, just by the nature of its existence is, is awesome. And, and it's saving us energy and effort um, expense. So we would have to be uh, mowing tightly around those trees, which is labor intensive. We would have to be spreading more fertilizer and wood mm-hmm. chips. And that gets done within the one hour of daily chores that go into the Turkey rotation. And, there's value derived from that and on the, the sort of turkey yield side too that gets that, that pays for all that labor. Um, mm. So it makes both budgets look look more appealing. Yeah, and whilst creating value for you, right? They're creating yeah. value for your farm. Well, I mean, economic value as well, uh, like a product that you can sell. Um, okay, that's super interesting. Um, and, you know, for me, you, you talked about chicken and scratching and that the turkey scratch less. And you've said that if they were scratching more, it could be more beneficial. Now, that may seem counterintuitive for some, 
Um, and especially in context where um, you have, for example, lots of mulch set around your trees to control the weed pressure, uh, which is a very common technique, um, mm-hmm. especially in the agroecological world. Um, and so I'm curious to know why you mentioned that scratching could be more beneficial. Yeah. For your context. Um, right? right, right. Yeah, the, the system they're in right now doesn't have, um, there's haphazard mulch, but not mulch that would be, is no longer for weed suppression right around the trunk. We, mm-hmm. When the early stages of tree growth, we did have mulch like that. And maybe I would be a little annoyed if uh, the animals totally scratched it away from the base of a young tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should say that turkeys are big enough that they will kill young trees. So it's not, not really. something for it's not something for two year old trees. They'll they'll um, especially in like a dry year they'll they'll try to peck at the bark of young trees. Young trees have like tender buds and tender bark. Mm-hmm. It's delicious, mm-hmm. and they will go after those. So they can't be fenced into those until that tree starts to get a little more juvenile and mm-hmm. has real branches and has some real uh, bark that isn't super tender. You need to put tree guards in this case. Yeah, and even with the tree guard, a turkey's tall enough that it will eat above the tree guard when it's uh, in its later stages of life. The turkey's pretty big, and it will eat above a tree guard if it's a tiny, like, one- to two-year-old tree. I wouldn't put them in there. Um, If you grow a really good three-year-old tree, I would put them in there. Um, A tree that maybe is close to standing six feet tall and has some branches. Okay, okay. Um, That's very interesting. Yeah, so... Mulch um, has been part of the system early on. We have dwarf orchards as well. So we have orchards that are on trellis that have mulch underneath them routinely. And um, we haven't done too much trials with the turkeys in there. They do scratch that. Uh, Chickens would probably scratch it more. But the desirable part of scratching, like you had asked, is um, I think you get the enhanced insect control benefit. It's also more of a decomposing action too. When they're stirring up mm. uh, litter underneath the trees, they're burying uh, leaves and they're they're kind of blanking and creating their own composting layer. But they are going after insects more readily, which might be hiding under tufts of grass or in the top layer of the soil. They're able to use their little talons and get in there and open it up and get after them. So um, they're a little more... Chickens seem like they're a little more adept. They're less like Godzilla and more like Velociraptors or something and are able to <laughs> get after those insects more agilely. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. All right. That's really interesting. So again, it shows that, you know, depending on your context, depending on your, your system, that would be or not an interesting feature to have more scratching or less, right? It, again, it's it always goes yeah. back to this, right? So it depends on your... On your context, I know on our farm in Greece, we would not want to have that because everything's mulched kind of closely because of this humidity problem and we're trying to conserve mm-hmm. as much as possible. And so um, right. I, we would be really pissed off if some, some chicken mm-hmm. went in there and just scratched everything all over the place and yeah. spread out kind of that, that, that buffer layer from temperatures and, and humidity loss. Right. We, we, yeah, we were geared up to have a, um, a 500 or 1,000 bird egg layer flock two years ago, but had to... Was, things were too complex. We had to decide not mm. to go down that road. But we we were de- we thought it'd be very desirable to have them as part of the farm for those reasons. But we okay. um yeah we pulled the plug on that project before we got started. Okay. But okay. Maybe something nice. Um. So we've talked a lot about the benefits of the turkeys, and um, what about some of the key challenges of the turkeys? I mean, <laughs> um, what, yeah. have you seen have you seen impacts? 
uh, from the turkeys that you have you know that, that you have to manage or that created uh, some labor costs for you or things that you would rather not have happened how, how does the the turkey create some kind of challenge beyond i mean we've not we've talked already about the management cost of or the management challenge of having the the turkeys and the spraying happen at the same time which is a bit you know creates yeah. some limit but beyond that what other problems have you and challenges have you experienced with them in the orchard um yeah the the introduction of raw manures like we've mentioned something we have to be thoughtful of and it's been somewhat limiting sometimes is getting them around the trees at the right time and you can only typically turkeys actually do herd fairly well. Like you can group them up, mm. not in a fence and you can walk them with four or five people into a whole nother, you know, walk them a half a mile away if you really wanted to, um, which is different than chickens. It's a little harder to do that. Like put them in a group and push them with like sort of a human energy. So, but they are limited a little bit in how they can move around the farm. Um, so you have to have this timing really good of like where, where can they be with for the right impact at the right time? Um, the turkeys themselves, I guess, for uh, challenges with them, a big breakthrough came when we we uh, put together that turkey arc system, that rolling roost system that the okay. Polyface Farm had figured out. Mm-hmm. Um, they that re- dramatically reduced the effort and uh, of taking care of the turkeys from protecting them from predation. So they, in that roost mm-hmm. system, they climb up to it in, at night and roost high, like they want to do naturally. And then they come down in the morning whenever they're ready to versus having to be out there in the morning. First thing to let them out of a coop or get them, stuff them into a coop that they don't want to go into at night. Um, so that, mm-hmm. that would happen anywhere in the orchard or not, but that was a, a large breakthrough is having that arc system for turkeys. It's really key to their pasture health and safety Um, and then damage to young trees i guess is one thing that we've learned and seeing how they will uh, what size tree is okay for a turkey to be around and introducing them to the dwarf orchard we're noticing that they will um, if the forage isn't rotated quickly enough they will go after low hanging branches they're tall enough that they can get the bottom layer of trellised uh, branches Okay. And that's, that's a bummer. So, um, <laughs> some, some interaction with the leaves and buds is to be expected, but if they were left too long in a, in a dwarf orchard, the trees are much more vulnerable than uh semi dwarf and chickens would not have that issue as much because they're just physically so much shorter. Okay. The turkey neck is quite long and they can reach quite high if they are, uh, if they're bored. I think we've covered a bit the, um the 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 turkey at one we could go into much more detail but you've brought up some really interesting considerations um Mm -hmm. and some really interesting different aspects um one of the things that i'm i'm curious to know uh, about is um do you think based on your experience that we could scale these kind of systems um a farmer that has uh, you know where we're working where i'm working at the moment with 10 hectares and he's got lots of these issues as well he's trying to manage for pests and disease problems he's trying to manage the decomposition of his litter uh, he's managing all of this mechanically and with sprays which is huge labor costs um if, if a farmer like this wanted to, to implement such a system um do you think it's possible and I'd, I'd also like us to focus a bit on the mechanization here as well like how, how would that impact the mechanization based on your experience um how yeah. scalable is this uh, I think absolutely scalable my, in my experience. Um, we're trying to scale it a little more uh, over time. 
taking a slow approach because we're first generation farmers and perennials are both expensive and time consuming and um, you make you want to make sure you do them right. I've definitely uh, this spring actually tore out a couple acres of trees I had planted eight years prior and feeling like I had done the wrong thing and um, had to kind of tear out the juvenile uh, several hundred trees that were not the right thing. So we're taking a slower approach to scaling now, um, but I think people with a lot more experience than we have could scale faster or larger. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I've been talking with some of our staff about is uh, orchards and apples in particular. I don't know if they're the best suited for scaling um, because it's definitely a, because of their horticultural intensity and orchard, we are very demanding of what we expect from an orchard. We want these these clonal trees to live in close proximity to each other in very uniform plantings and produce like with all these human needs on them to be either yielding at a certain level, branching in a certain way, like just like a very demanding system from where they maybe have originated from and we're in evolutionary terms, maybe asking too much of them too soon. Um, and just asking for a lot of like, labor and input costs and challenges with putting packing these trees in here uh, per acre. So I think one of the best opportunities with these trees and maybe a lot of trees in farm systems is to, particularly ones that have pest and disease problems is to, is to alley crop and is to space them really far apart um, and to have more of a hedgerow edge effect happening with these tree crops. Um, so they can scale over a larger landscape. I think they just have to be in the right density to each other and not uh, to reduce like these kind of heavy industrial inputs that are often required when you pack a bunch of these trees in the same space, um, if that makes any sense. Um, and then I think the infrastructure for for harvesting and mechanizing the production of apples is all there. Um, and these industries have a ton of the, you know, all the, the right uh, equipment and harvesting modalities and stuff figured out. So relying on those is, is um, mm. seems totally doable. But um, when trees are at lower densities, your uh, efficiency and use of that equipment and cost of land is higher. So there's all these sort of um, things that maybe go go negative on your your spreadsheet and your budget for a plan but i think it's outweighed by what you were talking about that over yielding aspect of a system yeah. as a whole if you can um manage the complexity and i think keeping the complexity as low as possible when you start is the best mm-hmm. i certainly need to keep it low i'm so much to learn still but like three elements that's a lot of elements they there's a lot mm-hmm. of interactions in those elements so um, two elements like tree and alley crop kind of, um, system that that's plenty to figure out the nuance of each of those crops themselves and then how they interact. And I would say that would allow it to be more scalable if you start with simplicity, um, and maybe not starting with the most horticulturally intensive crops to interact with each other. Yeah. Yeah. yeah makes sense. And what about the Turkey elements? What about scaling with the Turkey elements? Do you think that the that integrating turkeys in the way that you've been doing is that something that we could you know scale up to larger 
um yeah it's a, is is this you know as the orchard grows in size also the turkey flock grows in size and all the other kind of management uh practices based on mechanization as they also evolve with the growing orchard um is that something that you think is scalable or has to be done by a small scale farmer um i think it can be scalable in size but i think it does need to scale with people um i think I've mentioned, I guess, Polyface for him a couple times already, but I would mention them again as a as a place that's showing um, scaling small scale poultry production that still has a high level of, of contact of human contact in the system. Yeah, where uh, instead of one person managing more and more and more birds, it's often um, having that right size flock, that healthy size flock, and one person managing a reasonable amount of those flocks across the right amount of landscape. And then if you need to grow from there, another person coming in to manage a similar size, healthy unit and not trying to scale that like uh, mm. flock size or unit size um, is the way that that could grow. So I think you could have, they, the, there's, I think it has been proven that you can have really efficient production of, of it's not, um, yeah, it's not inefficient to produce poultry this way. There is a, higher cost to the customer oftentimes than industrial or processed products. But we know that those are, you're paying more of the true cost there. There's less hidden costs than you do get with industrialized poultry production. And um, that just is such a, a failing system that um, a, a scalable alternative where uh, it comes with more true costs is, is totally appealing, I think, to most folks now. Mm. One of the things we're seeing where we're working is um, people integrating sheep. And so there's a farmer that has some sheep um, yeah. and that will, will place them in between vineyards and, and, and then within, not orchards, but more in between the in the vineyards and on the cover crops of, of uh, broad acre crops, which in Switzerland is quite small, uh, small areas. It's not very, very large. And there's been some interesting integrations there with, you know, two people managing it because one person is professional in sheep and the other person is professional in trees or vineyards or broadacre. And so yeah. they, the broadacre farmer doesn't have to start, you know, learning how to manage sheep, which is, can be complex as you're saying at scale. Right. And, um, absolutely, yeah. and so it's kind of like, a, um, you know, the, the, the sheep farmer benefits from the cover crop and the broadacre farmer benefits from nutrient cycling from the sheep in his cover crop. And so there's a mutual benefit, there that also happens to be funded by the government partly which motivates people to do it which is needs to be mentioned but um yeah that's fantastic I, though yeah yeah I, I you know so that could be something interesting to do with with turkeys as well but anyways i think um um we've covered a lot of uh different aspects of 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 your farm and uh and the turkey uh as uh, agroforestry we didn't manage to get into the the asparagus so much but we had to focus because otherwise we would have uh, not been able to reach the depth that was necessary for the for the turkey integration yeah so um yeah thank you so much garrett um for um, for sharing um your story and um and sharing your your experience and knowledge here it's really appreciated yeah absolutely yeah and i appreciate the work you guys are doing it's it's awesome to hear these stories of other people i've got to hear a couple stories of people who are right nearby that have been fascinating people who are almost my neighbors here um in the finger lakes and uh yeah love the work you guys are doing happy to participate thanks for asking me 
If you've made it this far, I'd like to invite you to consider supporting us. We run the podcast after our day jobs and assume all the running costs. Any small contribution would help us to make, to keep going with the show. It's very easy to do. Just head to our website under the support us tab and page. There's a Gumroad app that enables you to make payments online. So thanks a lot for considering us and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time.